Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 63, The Death of Byzantium. Now, we have no new Patreon supporters this week, but as always, I really encourage everyone to pledge if you can. Uh, remember, just $1 an episode gets you that History of Bonsco miniseries. $3 an episode gets you access to all the transcripts. If you ever want to check anything I've written for the past, it's coming up on 65 episodes. They're all linked to right there in a nice Google Doc. You can check them all out. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff to check out, so consider just $1 an episode. It really makes a difference. So last time, we left off with the failure of yet another crusade led by the Hungarian regent John Hunyadi, which ended at the failure of the West at the Second Battle of Kosovo. At the same time, while the Ottomans were winning against Hungary, they were being consistently defeated by Skanderbeg and his Albanian forces. But in spite of those setbacks, Sultan Mehmet II is slowly and methodically preparing for his masterstroke. He intends to do what the Avars had failed to do in 626, what the Umayyads had failed to do in 674 and 717, what the Bulgarians had failed to do in 813, what the Rus had failed to do in 860, 907, and 941, what the Byzantines had failed to do, and what the Ottomans had failed to do in 1411 and 1422. He intended to take Constantinople, the greatest fortress city in the world. Now, only the Byzantines themselves and the Latins in 1204 had ever succeeded in taking the city. And both times, it was essentially through dumb luck. To be clear, no army had ever successfully taken this city through brute force, ever. The city's main defenses, the Theodosian walls, were over a thousand years old at this point but they were about to face their greatest challenge, a massive Ottoman army, and more importantly, a technology that was just beginning to revolutionize warfare, the cannon. So last time I described many of the things that Mehmet was doing to prepare for the siege. First, he was building a fortress on the Bosphorus so that alongside an older fortress built by his grandfather on the opposite bank, Constantinople could be effectively cut off from the Black Sea. Next, he stationed an army on the Peloponnesus to guarantee the Greek despotate there would not be able to send any aid to the city. Really, overall, Memo was covering his bases. He thought of every single way the city could escape his grasp, and he methodically prepared for it. But the question is, were the Byzantines aware of these preparations? And if so, how were they responding? Now, first, honestly, they caught on quite slowly, but... Once the Ottoman plans were clear, Emperor Constantine XI turned to the only method of aid which really seemed available to him, the Pope and the West. Just as his predecessors had done so many times, he wrote the Pope and promised a unification of the Eastern and Western churches. Now, as you'll recall, the population of Constantinople had always been vehemently against this, even stating commonly that they preferred an Ottoman turban to joining the Latins. 
but by now there was little population in the city left to even oppose the move. And so, it was ratified by the courts in 1452. However, the Pope, by this point, quite ironically, he simply didn't have the influence necessary to mobilize the West to save the city. This was particularly true if we remember that the West had mounted two failed crusades in the last decade alone, and Hunyadi had just signed a three-year truce with the Ottomans in 1451. On top of that, Spain was in the middle of the Reconquista, the reconquering of the Iberian Peninsula from the Islamic state Al-Andalus, and there was fighting within the Holy Roman Empire. France and England had just finished the Hundred Years' War and were exhausted. In short, there would be no great Western army coming to save Constantinople, church unification or not. So the union was proclaimed and it was made official. Honestly, most of the population just ignored it. Stephen Runciman put it well, quote, Had the union been followed quickly by the appearance of ships and soldiers from the West, its practical advantages might have won it general support. But as it was, they had paid the price demanded for Western aid and they were cheated, end quote. Another historian, Nicole, simply put it that, quote, It seemed that, in the end, when their backs were against the wall, they had allowed the Latins to win the last round of the battle of wits that had begun with the Fourth Crusade, end quote. And so, yeah, it's ironic. I mean, we've talked for so many dozens of episodes about these debates over the unification of the Eastern and Western churches. And now, now of all times, it finally happens. And doesn't mean a thing. It leads to no real discernible effect. The people ignore it. No aid comes. Nothing much happens. Okay, to be fair, some help did come. Some people did arrive from the West. But they numbered in the mere hundreds. There were some archers, some sailors, but nothing to match the tens of thousands of Ottomans that were gathering and preparing for the siege. Venice did eventually decide to send a fleet, but it came so late that it couldn't really help at all. As John Julius Norwich puts it in his seminal work, A Short History of Byzantium, quote, the great Italian maritime republics had essentially lost interest in the fate of Constantinople, in part because they had already made their arrangements for the promotion of their trade with the Turks, end quote. And this is a great problem for the Byzantine Empire because Genoa and Venice, they're trading empires. You know, they can have all the sympathy they want for the Christian states of Europe, but they've got to they've got to pay their bills. They need to make money, uh, particularly in Venice, where the Doge is an elected office. He needs to appease the great trading peoples of his city. And we're going to see this a lot throughout the history of the Ottoman Empire. That while kind of the land-based empires uh, of Europe will very often sort of fight the Ottomans on this uh, ideological and religious grounds. The trade base, those maritime empires, they're going to be a little more on the fence. They've got economic calculations to make. Emperor Constantine is trying everything he can. He can't get help from Venice in time. He can't get help from Genoa. He can't get help from the West more broadly or from the despotate of Morea. So he eventually just sends these lavish gifts to the sultan to try to appease him. But his ambassadors are executed. Ultimately, now, it's too late. Diplomacy and gold are not going to satiate Mehmet. Mehmet 
wants Constantinople. And no amount of glory or gold or anything in the world can fill that sort of Constantinople-shaped hole in his heart. And so as the battle approached, the city prepared. Walls were repaired and reinforced. A massive chain was stretched across the entrance of the Golden Horn to prevent Ottoman ships from entering. This also had the added benefit of keeping those waters safe for the Byzantines to fish, a nice source of food during the siege. Obviously, food was stockpiled as well, and fortunately for the Byzantines, there weren't many mouths to feed in the city anymore. All of Constantinople, once the largest city on earth, had maybe 50,000 residents and 7,000 soldiers ready to defend them. Around 2,000 of those soldiers were foreigners, many mercenaries. The city found itself having to melt down anything made of gold or silver to make coins to pay them. This included church objects, showing just how desperate the situation had gotten. One can imagine the sense of the city at this moment, always famous for its stubborn pride, having accepted church unification, melting down religious treasures to pay mercenaries, and all for this city that must have seemed eerily quiet compared to what it was in its heyday. By comparison, the Ottoman army was massive. Contemporary sources make claims of 160 to 300,000 soldiers. Now, those are vastly exaggerated, but still, our best guesses today place the size of the army between 50,000 and 80,000. So we're talking about an army that likely outnumbers the entire population of Constantinople, including the garrison, women, children, everyone together. The Ottoman army also included Christian forces fulfilling their vassal obligations, including Brankovic of Serbia. Alongside this force were more than 100 ships of various kinds, compared to the 26 ships that the Byzantines possessed. But what was important about this whole Ottoman force was also that it had this impressive sort of -of state-of-the-art cannon armament. And the story goes here that a Hungarian, or maybe German, maybe Vlachian, we don't know exactly, cannon-making master from what is now Brasov in Transylvania, in Romania, was the guy responsible. Now, in 1452, his name was Orban, Orban offered his services to the Byzantine emperor. However, no surprise there, the empire really had no money to pay him or the materials he would need to build any real cannons. So, he was turned away. He then traveled to the Ottoman capital of Adrianople, or Edirne, to offer his services to Mehmet. There, he was warmly greeted, paid handsomely, and given every possible resource he would require to build his cannons. And that's what he did. Building many smaller cannons, along with a few massive specialized cannons designed specifically to blast the Theodosian walls to dust. The bigger ones took a team of 60 oxen and 400 men to drag from their foundries in Adrianople to the walls. This particular cannon was 27 feet, 8.2 meters long. The cannonballs it would launch weighed 600 pounds, or 272 kilograms each. It was a mighty weapon, and you can see a photo of it on the website. Other cannons were also forged at the site of the siege to avoid having to drag them so far. In April 1453, the Ottoman force arrived and established a siege perimeter around the entire city. By the 5th, 
The Sultan himself was there and the siege proper began. You can find a map of the whole affair also on the website. Now, obviously the Byzantines had to be very careful with how they allocated their forces, concentrating where they thought the most likely attacks were going to come from, uh, which was basically the weaker points of the land walls. Mehmet began by going through what was almost a formality, taking the final few Byzantine strongholds outside the city proper. This included a few forts in the Prince's Islands, a series of islands in the Sea of Marmara, which you can see from Constantinople. I highly recommend visiting them. They're quite beautiful. At the same time, the Sultan's huge cannons began their fearsome work. Every few hours, the crews would complete the loading and fire a new cannonball. However, the slow pace of firing and the lack of precision allowed the Byzantines plenty of time to repair the damage that was done. Now, quick note, at some point during this battle, it seemed that one of these super guns misfired and exploded, which actually killed Orban, the man who kind of created these cannons, was the genius behind them. So he died in this siege. Now, during the first few weeks of the siege, a flotilla of three Genoese ships and one Byzantine one managed to fight their way through the Ottoman blockade and actually enter the Golden Horn, bringing a few supplies, but mostly just functioning as a huge propaganda victory for the Byzantines. Now, understandably, the Sultan was furious, and so he was very determined to end any Byzantine access to the sea. He didn't want this happening again. And so he started probably the most famous endeavor of this entire siege of Constantinople. Mehmet ordered a series of greased logs to be laid out along the shores of the Bosphorus. And his army used these to drag Ottoman ships out of the water, onto the land, and over this hill, separating them from the Golden Horn. Now, if you go to uh, Istanbul today, this is the, the Galata neighborhood. You can see that Galata Tower. That tower was there at this time. Essentially, you imagine just dragging ships around the Galata neighborhood from the Bosphorus into the Golden Horn. You can check out a map on the website to get a better idea of where this happened. But in essence, the Ottomans dragged their ships overland around that great chain, which was protecting the last bit of Byzantine-controlled water. The result was the end of any hope of resupply for the Byzantines and a huge blow to their morale. No one had ever gotten around this chain. No one had ever seen anything like this, dragging these ships across land. It was a remarkable achievement of military and sort of logistical precision. Now, the Byzantines attempted to destroy the Ottoman ships in the Golden Horn by, well, using flame ships. You load up a ship with a lot of flammable material, you set it on fire, and you push it towards the enemy. However, the Ottomans knew the attack was coming, and so they managed to kind of hold it off, and so it was ineffective. Now, by this time, brutality was coming out as the Ottomans were becoming increasingly frustrated with the progress of the siege. They wanted this over with. Captured Italian sailors were beheaded, and their impaled heads were displayed on pikes for all in the city to see. In response, the Byzantines did the same for Ottoman captives, displaying them on the walls. All the while, cannon bombardments and frontal assaults on the walls continued. Fortunately, we have several accounts from people who witnessed these events firsthand, and while a few don't offer anything of particular interest, a Venetian surgeon does offer this fascinating account of Ottoman assaults. He said, quote, They found the Turks coming right up under the walls and seeking battle, particularly the Janissaries. 
and when one or two of them were killed, at once more Turks came and took away the dead ones, without caring how near they came to the city walls. Our men shot at them with guns and crossbows, aiming at the Turk who was carrying away his dead countrymen, and both of them would fall to the ground dead. And then there came other Turks and took them away, none fearing death, but being willing to let ten of themselves be killed rather than suffer the shame of leaving a single Turkish corpse by the walls. End quote. Now, of course, ironically, you'll see it's a lot of these sources, they just refer to all Ottomans as Turks, even though he's talking about Janissaries. And if you're a Janissary, you're basically by definition not ethnically Turkish. You're, uh, you're probably, you're certainly born Christian in the Balkans. So just a minor point of clarification there. But eh, he's a Venetian surgeon. What does he care about uh, getting those little details right? But anyways, the problem was, quite ironically, that those massive Ottoman cannons actually broke apart sections of those hard stone walls. And once those hard walls were kind of broken apart, they suddenly became much more able to impact the, or to kind of absorb the impact of those cannonballs. And so the more damage that was done to the walls, the less damage that would be done with each subsequent attack. Thus, even though the Ottomans had such an overwhelming superiority of men and firepower, well, they were consistently repulsed over the first month of the siege. But as the moving of the ships overland into the Golden Horn should tell us, Sultan Mehmed was not the kind of man who would just focus on a single strategy and if it didn't work, say, oh well. So while all this was going on, he had been employing German and Serbian engineers to dig tunnels under the walls. But the Byzantines dug their own tunnels, met those ones, and killed the men inside of them. Eventually, captured Ottomans revealed the location of the remaining tunnels and, well, tunneling as a tactic was pretty much done with. The Byzantines neutralized them. So by May 21st, that's where the siege stood. The Byzantines had lost the sea, had no hope of reinforcement. The Ottomans had lost thousands of soldiers mounting attack after attack on the city walls. Their tunneling efforts had failed. Still, Unlike previous sieges, the Ottomans were well-supplied and in no danger of outside attack. The only real rush was Mehmet's pride and impatience. But, well, let's say Mehmet's pride and impatience were powerful forces. So, on that day, May 21st, Mehmet offered the emperor a deal. If he surrendered the city, the Byzantines could remain there and pay tribute, which Seems like a weird deal to me, considering all the trouble the Ottomans had gone to at this point, but fair enough. Or alternatively, the other part of the deal was that the population could be resettled elsewhere, possibly in the Ottoman-dominated despotate of Morea, which Constantine had previously governed. This is in what's now southern Greece. But the emperor would have none of it. And so Mehmet faced his final choice. Some advisors thought that taking the city would still be too difficult and urged him to abandon the siege and accept higher tribute instead. But ultimately, Mehmet listened to those urging him to finish what he had started. Because Constantinople had refused to surrender, according to Islamic law, the city could now be plundered. In other words, all bets were off. Mehmet had done what he felt he could to spare their lives, and now, in his mind, he was completely justified to prepare for a final assault and give the city no mercy. Monday, May 28, 1453, was designated a day of rest by Mehmed in preparation for a final assault. That same day, a solemn service was held in the Hagia Sophia, the city's main church. 
Representatives of clergy who had agreed to the merger with the Latin church, as well as those who had opposed it, both attended along with the emperor himself. Everyone attending knew that the end of their city, their way of life, their empire, all of it was coming to near, coming near. Just as just after dawn on the morning of May 29th, the attack began. The first waves were made up of poorly equipped irregular troops intended to soften the defenses and take the biggest losses. As usual, these attacks made little impact. After a few hours, Ottoman regular troops entered the melee, but still little progress was made against the hardened defenders on those great walls. Finally, Mehmet ordered the Janissaries to enter the fray, while an attack began on the sea walls facing the Golden Horn. On the land walls, the Genoese commander fighting for the Byzantines was wounded and brought back from the fighting. His soldiers responded by retreating, allowing the Janissaries to take the walls in that section. Around the same time, a gate had been left open, allowing yet another group of Janissaries to take another section of the walls. Seeing the two breaches, Ottoman forces rushed forward and into the city. The defenders either retreated in a desperate attempt to protect their families and their homes, or came forward to fight. The emperor himself was one of the latter, rushing into the maelstrom and dying in the fighting, though his body was never recovered. And so, that's how the last Roman emperor died. Nearly 1,500 years after Caesar first took the title, Constantine XI was 48 years old. His empire was now over a thousand years old. Behind him stretched a line of 96 Byzantine emperors going back to Constantine the Great. Besides him, a few Italians escaped the plunder of the great city, but most were left to their fate, left to the fate of a city that refused to surrender. The historian Norwich describes what happens after. Quote, the rape and pillage began immediately as the soldiers of the sultan claimed their reward. Churches were despoiled, houses were ransacked, and the treasures that had escaped the plundering of the crusades now fell to the hands of the Turks. The icon of the Virgin Odegieta, supposedly the work of St. Luke himself, was destroyed. Jeweled covers were removed from books before they were burned, and mosaics and frescoes were gouged and hacked. The survivors were rounded up and carried off as slaves although many killed themselves rather than fall into the hands of the conquerors. There's no reliable account, but contemporary estimates held that 4,000 people were killed and 50,000 led into slavery. Mehmet rode on his horse to the great Hagia Sophia in the center of the city and proclaimed it a mosque. Captured Byzantine aristocrats were initially given mercy, but after a time the sultan changed his mind and had all the men of the great families of Constantinople executed. Still, on the whole, the looting was mostly focused on buildings as the sultan wanted the city to become his great capital, and he wanted it to have a population to make it a great capital. But what obsessed him in those heady days just after the brutal 57-day siege was finding the body of Emperor Constantine. Mehmet wanted to ensure that he had not escaped and couldn't launch a rebellion. And so piles of bodies and severed heads were washed and examined in an attempt to find the emperor. One body was found wearing silk stockings with an embroidered eagle, but when its head was displayed before the city's population, no one recognized it as belonging to their emperor. Thus, 
To this day, the final resting place of Constantine is unknown. True, some small Byzantine successor states, like the Despotate of Morea in what's now Greece, and the Empire of Trebizond in northeastern Anatolia survived. But, for all intents and purposes, the empire was now gone for good. So many peoples, from the Bulgarians and the Avars to the Arabs, had dreamed of taking this city. But only the Latins, the Crusaders, had ever done it. Now, though, it was entering a new phase. It would quickly become the new Ottoman capital, a role it would play until the 20th century. With this conquest, Mehmet proclaimed himself the new Byzantine Empire, Emperor, or Caesar of Rome, as he put it. Now, the West had already established the Holy Roman Empire, and so they obviously didn't recognize his claim, but ironically enough, the Orthodox Church did convince itself to recognize it. And to be fair, Mehmet was actually descended from the Byzantine royal family. Remember, they had intermarried. Mehmet's great-great-great-grandmother was a Byzantine princess. So, actually, interestingly, Mehmet was a descendant of not just any Byzantines, but the Komnenos family, which, you'll recall, had led Byzantine Byzantium to its great golden age. I mean, one of the, the, the most powerful and dangerous for the Bulgarians period of Byzantine history was the Komnenian Restoration. And on the other hand, Constantine XI had no children. He did have surviving family members, though, and some of those family members would claim the Byzantine throne in exile, but to no avail. I mean, no one really took them that seriously. So while Constantine's nephews were in the city and they actually converted to Islam and would later serve in high positions like governor general of the Balkans, so much like we saw with Bulgaria and other places where the Ottomans conquered, they would very often kind of absorb some or all of the the kind of elites of those peoples, those populations into their own elite. Uh, Remember, like from the Janissaries onward, the Ottoman elite was really very open in the sense that you, besides religion, I mean, you needed to kind of convert to Islam to really join that elite, but your ethnicity did not matter. I've said over time that, you know, the Ottomans would have Greek grand viziers, Albanian grand viziers, uh, Persian people, all, all kinds of different groups of people would get into the, the highest elite echelons of the Ottoman Empire. So it's not surprising that, you know, they offered this to the last Byzantines that, hey, you know, if you want to convert, you want to really join, then you can join. Just like the, the descendants of the last Bulgarian Tsars, some of them converted to Islam, joined the Ottomans. So with that, with the end of the Byzantine Empire, with the end of the Roman Empire, because remember the Byzantines never called themselves Byzantines. This was an invention of later uh, historians. You know, the Byzantines saw themselves as the Roman Empire, the empire of Romulus and Remus and Caesar Augustus. And so with the fall of Constantinople, again, you you had Morea and the Trebizond and all these places, but really for all intents and purposes, this is the end. It is over. The Roman Empire has lasted for thousands of years at this point, but with the fall of Constantinople, we see its final fall. So I'm going to leave it there for now, but because, you know, as great as an accomplishment as conquering Constantinople was, Mehmet, who shortly will be called Mehmet the Conqueror for obvious reasons, well, Mehmet's far from done. He's entered the gates of the city 
just about a month after his 21st birthday. He's just 21 years old. And so Mehmet is still young. He's supremely capable. He's been raised uh, on campaign with his father. He's bursting with ambition. And so next time, we're going to see just what he does with all this ambition, just where Mehmet will go next. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. And, as always, Uspech. Or in English, good luck.